This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a all things Hellraiser Clyde Barker podcast. I'm Joe Lipsit, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Brian Christopher. Hi, Brian. Hey, Joe. How are you doing today? I have read a metric ton of Hellraiser related stories, Brian. <laughs> we read 21 Hellraiser related stories. 21 <laughs> over the course of like a little under 300 pages. So, you know, I remember we were, um, <laughs> I would say, if we're being honest, complaining a little bit about, mm-hmm. at least I was, the length of some of Clive Barker's quote unquote short stories. Correct. These yep. definitely put the short in short stories, at least comparatively. Sure. <laughs> um, there yeah. was. There was a lot of of content in here, a lot of of things going on. I think we're both going to agree that it was a mixed bag, Mm -hmm. but one that I think overall, the ones that stand out made the, the whole experience worthwhile for me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely some gems in this collection. And folks, in case you have not read the episode title or you happen to randomly be playing this because you subscribe to the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad, we are talking about Hellbound Hearts, which is an anthology collection edited by Paul Kane as well as Mary O'Regan. And yeah, this just kind of collects a bunch of some famous, some random. <laughs> who just wanted to play around in the Hellraiser sandbox. And Brian, I think um, we're just going to kind of step through a couple of the stories that stood out to us. So folks, we're not going to talk about all 21 of the stories, but uh, I maybe wondered if we could open with Peter Atkins's Prisoners of the Inferno. This is the opening one. And to me, it it doesn't start the anthology on the strongest note. Not really, yeah, and especially considering like Peter Atkins. I I, I wonder if they're they're going by the name to open mm-hmm. up with, you know, because he had written uh, three uh, the screenplay for three and four, right. and so you know maybe they wanted to kind of draw us in with somebody who we knew had already played in the Hellraiser universe a bit. But yeah, mm-hmm. I wasn't over the moon with this one. It wasn't bad. No, but it was it was actually kind of funny. A peek behind the curtain for the listeners. We put together a list of the ones we really wanted to focus on with a little like, you know, capsule uh, thoughts on it. And, and Joe says, surprisingly bland. And I <laughs> and I remembered like going back. I'm like, what the hell was this story about? I literally had to right? go back and look at the story and be like, what was this even about? Um, so for those who are following along, uh, this is a guy who uh, he's a – golden age era film buff who mm-hmm. likes to find like those real deep cuts the ones that you know people don't even know exist or the ones that are just kind of like you know in the ether of of myth and and people aren't even sure if they actually do exist even if they're talked about um and so he stumbles on like a one sheet that yeah. is from uh, a movie called Prisoners of the Inferno. And, you know, he describes it as there's this woman who is, I think, strapped to like this gigantic pillar and she's looking off uh, to some horrific thing that's like behind the camera. You mm-hmm. know, and, and so he's he's immediately intrigued. He immediately kind of wants to go down the rabbit hole of, uh, you know, I'm going to find this thing. It becomes, you know, his 
lament configuration obsession. You know, absolutely. It, it's Atkins kind of playing the Frank Cotton trope, but mm-hmm. with a movie. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why I was a little mm, frustrated is too strong a word. One of the reasons that I I had higher hopes for this is because it is set within the world of cinema, and of course. You know, Hellraiser is an inherently cinematic property. So I was hoping we were going to get something just a little bit more. But this is very much a be careful what you wish for. He ends up finding exactly what he's looking for. And lo and behold, he gets sucked off into a hell dimension. (laughs) The end. Yeah, yeah. With kind of very little fanfare. Mm -hmm. It just ends. It's just a sequence of events. Like you don't really get as much of that... uh, that obsessive pull Mm-mm. that you would expect from a Hellraiser story. And yeah, when it when it happens, it's like, yes, he realizes, oh, this is actually hell and I'm actually going to it. The end. Yeah. Jumping ahead a couple stories, Mick Garris also has a movie-related short in this called Hellbound Hollywood. And this is an interesting one because it's the same kind of obsessive interest, but it takes place over a shorter amount of time. The idea is that a B-movie director sets up shop for an upcoming production in a very familiar UK house, <laughs> and he ends up inadvertently calling the Cenobites, and they basically fuck him to death? Yeah, yeah, they... Or or they watch as he and like a uh, production assistant mm-hmm. kind of fuck each other to death in this yes. very harrowing way where they're just kind of like flayed and pulled and all kinds of, you know, the standard Hellraiser tropes where, you know, mm-hmm. chains are pulling flesh and things are contorted into ways they shouldn't be. But all while they're if, – if I'm reading this correctly, all while they're still kind of penetrating each other. So they're this yes. one kind of entity. Mm-hmm. And (laughs) this is another moment where, like, the notes kind of help me talk about this because there is something vaguely sexy about this story in a way where it's like – I don't know if you've seen, like, uh, on social media the kind of – the meme going around of someone watching someone and then you see, like, the the kink unlock bubble go over their head and they're like, really? (laughs) That was kind of what I had during this story. Both with the uh, that kind of scene playing out with the production assistant and the Cenobite, because right. the Cenobite is supposed to be this grotesque thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not comfortable giving it the nickname that uh, Garrus's no. character gives it. Uh, the C word is involved. Yep. Um, but the idea is that this Cenobite's face resembles a vulva, like a giant mm-hmm. vulva. And so at one point, it swallows his head. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's this grotesque thing because it's got I think if if I remember correctly it has like six breasts and it's just kind of like this walking sex but this uncomfortable sex. Yes, but there's still something about it that it's like why is this <laughs> piquing my interest? I don't know what's going on here. And yeah, the little like you know kink uh, unlocked. It's like really okay. Yeah, Mick Garris, tell us more. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was a little relieved to think I wasn't the only one who had that reaction to it. 
I mean, here's the thing. Mick Garris has done a number of quote-unquote sexy horror films, right? Hello, like, Sleepwalkers. Yeah, honestly, I was thinking of Sleepwalkers where you're just like, oh, it's taboo. It's yeah. a little bit kinky. Why am I turned on? <laughs> and there is that there. I mean, this is a pretty slight story. Mm-hmm. But because it's Mick Garris and then the character is a B-movie film director, no shade on Mr. Garris, but... It felt like it was very autobiographical. Yeah, was this a little confessional? Like, is he getting? Is he? You know, is he putting some cards on the table with this one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I think he veiled it just enough because if I remember correctly, I think he made the director British. You know, I think he put just enough window dressing on to like give some plausible deniability. But yeah, I'm (laughs) I'm wondering if the same thing. I I was kind of wondering the same thing myself. Oh, it was too funny. <laughs> but Brian, why don't we talk about uh, an early story that we both latched onto and quite liked. So this is The Confessor's Tale by Sarah Pinborough. And this one immediately captured my attention because it's not a contemporary story. And it's not even set during the 21st century. It's set in like, I want to say the 13th or 14th or 15th century in Russia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of a, a running thing for me where the, the stories that were interesting were when they took Hellraiser and put it through a different cultural lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is the first time that they do that. So this story yeah, takes place um, with a young Russian boy who we find out at the beginning uh, has no tongue. Mm-hmm. And they hint at there's two possible reasons for this. Oh, that man. A, a wolf came in and ate it. Sure. Snuck into his room in the middle of the night, ate his mm-hmm. tongue, and absconded with it. Yeah. Or there is a rumor that his mom did it. And mm-hmm. when the local authorities found out what she did, she was absolutely brutalized and then like buried alive somewhere in the, the local like courtyard or something like that. As you do. Yeah. As you do. As one does. Yeah. And so he spends – he grows up – basically disconnected from everything like he Mm -hmm. has no real passions he has no real like the the biggest connection he has is to a widow that comes in and takes over the house after his dad dies you know and that's more of like a relationship of like i won't bother you you don't bother me Mm -hmm. where he does start to get some kind of a spark of of life is he finds this small puzzle Mm -hmm. that had been left by by his mom and he you know, takes it as far as he can in terms of solving it, but it's very uh, anticlimactic when he solves what he thinks is the end of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. But then he realizes that the kind of the secret sauce to this puzzle is when he hears other people in the town's like deepest, darkest secrets, because people seem to be comfortable saying these things around him because he is mute. Mm-hmm. They know that he's never going to spill their secrets, so they'll exactly. confess something to him, and then they feel relieved. And then the next day, they often seem to die. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And then when they do die, um, one of the puzzle pieces, I believe, turns red. You Correct. Know, and you get a sense that it's building towards something. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what. We kind of have an idea as Hellraiser. Of course. Fans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this all culminates in some like palace intrigue because the widow ends up selling him to the king who puts him to work. And the king loves him because the boy is the only person who never judges him for all of his really fucked up vices. Like this guy will just do 
anything to get a reaction. So he is raping, pillaging, murdering, and this boy doesn't blink an eye, so he becomes the favorite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do love that idea that it becomes like a challenge for the king where like, Mm -hmm. I want to get a reaction out of this kid. So I'm going to keep doing more and more messed up things in front of him. And he can't do it. He can't, he can't get a rise out of him or get any reaction out of him. And the language here is really good. Like the descriptions where they're talking about washing all the blood off the floor and like just closing the door on it because nobody wants to talk about it. Like there's really, really good descriptive writing in this story. Yeah, author uh, Sarah Pinborough is really good at the implication. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that sounds very much like Dennis from It's Always Sunny for It's Always Sunny <laughs> fans. But um, she is very good at um, letting your imagination take over for a lot of what's going on behind these closed doors. Like giving you just enough mm-hmm. of a tease of kind of this really horrible, debaucherous stuff. Right. Uh, but then letting your mind kind of run with it. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we as Hellraiser fans would expect, it culminates in the opening of the box. You know, at last, at the end, the final confession is from the king himself. Of course. And this is what opens the box. And this is the reveal. Here we go. Here we go. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And this gets into what I've really been wanting from a good Hellraiser story for a long time. Uh, We actually talked about this way back when we did our Hellraiser retrospective back for Daily Dead and for Corpse Club. Mm -hmm. You know, I like to imagine that there are people who open the box and the Cenobites are exactly what they wanted. Yes. And the pleasure. It's the pleasure that people always forget. They always focus on the pain. And in this case, this is everything that this boy ever wanted. Uh-huh. And and this, I think, is where Pinborough really doesn't hold back on the description. She is really just letting it all out there in terms of talking about just kind of the the horrible mutilation that's happening to this kid, mm-hmm. but the absolute ecstasy and joy he is getting from it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of cases we do, even in some of the other stories where we talk about the the combination of agony and pleasure, this is the one where it's like he's not even a little bit phased by it. He mm-hmm. loves all of it. Yeah. Um, and then it turns into just a little bit of a revenge tale where, sure. you know, he's been listening to this. He hasn't been phased by it, but he knows what this guy did to his mom. And so mm-hmm. he's going to take him as his first toy uh, when he goes back into Cenobite land, when he goes back into the Leviathan. Uh, this king is the first one that goes with him. Yeah, because we I don't think we made it extremely clear this boy becomes a Cenobite called yes. the Confessor. Mm-hmm. And so you're just like, oh, wow, this is a fairy tale slash fable set in a foreign land with like really rich description, just enough gore to tease. And then, yeah, it's got this kind of good for him ending, which is secretly the birth of a new Cenobite. Ah. Yeah, right. this whole it's so thing fucking was good. <laughs> just a delightful Cenobite origin story. And just mm-hmm. like, it was just, I think this might actually be my favorite of the bunch. It's so good. And and it's rough because this is quite early in yeah, this anthology. Yeah. So I think like, this was like the third story. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Not to say that the other stories are bad, but um, but this is one of what we identified as three stories where people open the box and they kind of get what they want. Mm-hmm. One of the other ones I I think is a little bit more complex uh, than to say they get what they want, but uh, Orpheo the Damned by Nancy Holder. 
a woman who is in a, a mental health facility or some kind of like a maybe a drug rehab. Mm-hmm. Uh, she winds up getting uh, – Within the clutches of the Cenobite, she spends, you know, I think the way they describe it is she could be in there for like years or like decades. And, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that either she finds what she wants there ultimately Mm -hmm. or it's almost some kind of like horrible like Stockholm syndrome. So like when when someone's – when her her, uh, significant other uh, tries to come save her, she's like, I don't want to be saved leave me here i don't Mm -hmm. i don't want because he offers to like trade places she's like no like you don't get it like i want to be here right but that one's i think of the the three we're going to talk about where people get what they want quote unquote this one's probably the murkiest and i think nancy holder is is doing that on purpose where Mm -hmm. he's leaving it ambiguous to say like okay is this is this empowering or is this tragic Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if I remember correctly, the story ends with her being booted out of mm-hmm. the Leviathan and the Pinhead proxy, because Pinhead doesn't technically appear in any of these stories, but we get vague-ish descriptions about the leader of the Cenobites in some of them that sound suspiciously familiar, mm-hmm. and then this is one of them. But the lead Cenobite effectively says, you know, you want it too much, so I'm not going to do it so that I can enjoy your suffering that you're not getting what you want. And that ending actually reminds me of the Black Coat's Daughter, that mm, ending mm-hmm. where like the the ultimate pain is that separation right. from that thing you've grown so attached to or, you know, in some weird way affectionate of. Um, and I apologize, spoiler alert for anybody who has not yet seen the Black Coat's oh Daughter. God, but what are you waiting for? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I would say a great Horror Queers episode on that too. So, hmm. Uh, go back and listen to that. Go back and watch the Black Coat's Daughter. Then compare it to Orpheo of the Damned. I think you know. Uh, I think you'll agree that there's at least some uh, some similar vibe in that feeling of the ending. Hmm. So then, the third story that falls into this kind of categorization is one called Sister Celise, and mm-hmm. this is one of two stories that's actually written by an actor in the Hellraiser universe. So it's written by Barbie Wilde, who is, of course, the female Cenobite. Yes, in part two, um, she took over for that role in uh, in Hellbound, mm-hmm. and yeah, this one is uh, a little bit more straightforward than Orfeo the Damned in terms of someone getting what they want out of the box. We have a uh, a nun, uh, Sister Nicoletta, I believe her name is, mm-hmm. and she grapples through much of the story with the. You know, the impure thoughts that she is trying to uh, force down. And, you know, she gets into self-flagellation and she gets into things that have the opposite effect of what she's going for. They actually only turn her on more and they turn into like these, you know, uh, fantastical basically masturbation sessions where she is flagellating. She's using the whip for other purposes. um, And she's imagining herself with like the local father. And Mm -hmm. it's this, you know, this stretch of basically just like you feel for her because she is self-loathing, you know, because of these social norms um, that are put on her, which, you know, they're bad enough today, much less, you know, the several hundred years ago when the story takes place. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think this is probably one of the more empowering stories where when she opens the box, it's just she is not just opening the lament configuration. She is finally opening her true self, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and the title Sister Celise is uh, a reference to 
the contraption that she used as a nun, uh, which is basically like a garter with nails on the inside of it that you wrap Ooh. around your thigh, um, that is you know very uncomfortable to say the least. But that kind <laughs> of becomes her uh, her calling card when she right. when she achieves her cenobitehood. Um, so you know it's kind of cool to see. Uh, the transition from that as a tool of her own self-loathing to Mm -hmm. a tool of her own self-empowerment. Yeah. And the writing is really evocative in this one, too. There are whole passages that are quite difficult to read. Like, masturbation as self-harm isn't sexy. It's Mm -hmm. just uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But the writing from Wild is such that you completely understand the situation and you... Like, you can almost anticipate that things are going to get better for this character. You can see the pleasure on the horizon. And when it comes, she is in ecstasy. And Mm -hmm. it's really exciting. It's really kind of captivating to read. Yeah, again, it goes back to that idea of, you know, Barbie Wilde knows her audience here. Yes. So she's expecting us to be reading this going like, oh, you poor thing. If only there were Mm. these (laughs) entities that could combine these things that you right. seem to enjoy in a way that isn't self-loathing right i've got only just someone the could folks. understand you yeah yeah <laughs> um and i was i was also very glad that she didn't like pull back at the last second because mm-hmm. my worry was that sister nicoletta was going to like get to that precipice and then suddenly decide she'd made a mistake and this isn't what she wanted and it was going to be like you know the the tragic ending uh so Mm -hmm. i was very glad that she leaned into the idea of like yes it's overwhelming and this is these are things i have never felt before and it's excruciating but i wouldn't change it for the world it's kind of the idea that you get um so yeah it is i'm i'm so glad she didn't like you know chicken out at the end and have it be like this morality tale or something like that Mm mm-hmm yeah, because there's there's no shortage of those. There's quite a few of the stories. We're we're not going to talk about most of them because I found them a little bit pedantic. They're too, honestly, back half of the Hellraiser films for me, where it's like, be careful what you wish for. Oh, it's a cop who did this thing, or a private investigator, or a bad man. <laughs> I think the one that comes closest to that, but still has interesting things to kind of play with, is one of the last stories. It's dot 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 however by Gary A. Bronbeck and Lucy A. Snyder. And this is an interesting premise because you don't understand what's going on for i want to say the first third of the story yeah yeah so it's told from the point of view of i think three uh, teenage slash early 20s people who have Mm -hmm. been abducted by the sadistic couple who is using them to like torture and assaults and basically just like keep as prisoners in their dungeon Mm -hmm. maybe even like videotape and sell the tapes or something like there's very much a hint that this is sex trafficking yeah yeah and it's like it's just starting out on a very uncomfortable note kind of one Mm -hmm. of those things where it's just like where is this going to go that it's not just going to wind up being worse for this group of kidnappees because you you get the idea early on that they were going to stumble on a lament configuration and that's of kind course. of what happens yeah yeah um you know one of them goes up basically on just like a raiding mission to go get food like mm-hmm. they just haven't been eating yeah they've been starved yeah they've been starved and again this is just like really bleak stuff and so they get all of the the food but they also get the box and then one of the people is like he describes himself as like, I'm not that smart, but I'm really good with puzzles. Sure. 
So he, you know, gets obsessed. He goes through. He solves it as everybody seems to. Um, <laughs> and they bring on the Cenobites. And, of course, the Cenobites don't really give a crap from, like, you know, whether or not these are good or bad people, whether or not they deserve punishment. Like, Yeah, they, they don't the care box. about the predicament at all. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of interesting, but I don't know fully in line with the the Hellraiser mythos that's been set up because... Definitely not too, right? If you're yeah. thinking about, they don't want people who don't actually want to engage with them. So the idea that these people would call them and say, hey, can you free us? And for them to say, nah, we're just not really interested. I do think that they would have a slightly different reaction. Yeah, yeah. It's the line from, from part two, you know, it's not hands that open us, it's desire. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I will Whatever. also say, you know, fair <laughs> enough that, like, you know, you could argue that Kirsty wasn't really wanting the Cenobite. She just found this box and she opened it and they were fully willing to take her. True. Um, yeah. But in this case, they take an interesting tact where the Cenobites are like, we don't really give a crap. We're taking you all with us and we're going to torture you and you're going to get the full the full experience. Mm-hmm. And then if if I'm reading it correctly, they go to touch the first guy the guy who opened the box and it's almost like he is harmful to them to touch Mm -hmm. in a way that they're very clear to describe like yes cenobites are used to harm this is different this was not a pleasant kind of a hurt for them yeah like they've already experienced so much that the cenobites realize there's nothing left for us to show you so we're actually just going to leave you here but then we get to the bartering Yes, you know, uh, and so, you know, please help us. It turns into an argument where, once again, the Cenobites don't really care about anything in this situation, so they don't really have anything to barter until the their captors come home and you hear them arguing upstairs. And the one Cenobite, it's almost in like a punchline where he's like, you don't have anything to offer us by way of pleasure. Mm-hmm. And then like, they describe him almost like looking up and there's this punchline. He goes, however, implying uh-huh. that like the people who just came home will be the ones who can like, you know, they can take them back and get some enjoyment out of them. Sure. Yeah. And that's where the story ends. That's where it ends. <laughs> and like it turned into like a weird Tales from the Crypt punchline at the mm-hmm. end where it's just like it was it was interesting. I think it was as far away from the feel of a Hellraiser story as might be in any of these. Um, where it's just like, I appreciate kind of like the little bit of a fist bump moment where you realize that like the, you know, the captors are going to get theirs, but mm-hmm. there was just, it seemed so weird and a weird, like comical left turn in a story that does not, earn or deserve that like this is not Mm. a funny story so to have that little like you know humorous or comical like punchline at the end just seemed a little off-putting for me yeah and this isn't the only one that has a kind of I hesitate to say twist ending, but yeah, that reversal of fortune or something that recontextualizes the story that you've been reading in a way that could be described as a little bit twisty so i would say there's there's two other ones one i really really liked and another that is i would say a mixed success so let's talk about the mixed one first so uh this is the other story that was written by an actor in the hellraiser universe nicholas vince and the story is called demons designs yeah this one had some interesting elements to it 
mm-hmm. they came together in a way that was confusing. Like okay. I had, I had trouble really following exactly what was going on. Yeah. You know, I think that Vince was ambitious in terms of the things he was trying to describe. I don't know that he quite got there in doing it in a way that I was able to picture it. Mm-hmm. And that's a very tricky thing to pull off in some of these cases, especially, you know, we've talked about the way Barker is able to describe these things that, like, you get what's going on, but you can't even fully wrap your mind around it. Mm-hmm. You know, like the 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 two villages from the, the story where they basically strap themselves into these giant, like, monster titan things. You right. know what's going on, but the description is such that it's like, you understand it, but you can't comprehend it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Vince was going for and um, in this, okay. but I don't think he was able to get there where it's like, not only did I not fully comprehend it, I didn't understand what was going on towards the end of it. Yeah. So this is the story of a pair of, I think, teenage or early 20-something boyfriends. And the relationship is relatively new, mm-hmm. but it's told from the perspective of the the new boyfriend and this guy that he's been dating has a very famous art installation father. But this boy is worried that his dad is going to try something at the opening of his new exhibition that evening. So the story opens as they're sort of talking about this en route to the installation. And the way that the stage is set, it's hard to understand. Like, where are we? What are we doing? What is real kind of deal? Like, Mm -hmm. Then they get to the actual installation and it starts to make more sense. So I was like, okay, now I'm following, you know, the data is obviously making art based on the lament configuration. So it's very similar to what we see in bloodline among other things. And there have been people who have been invited to come and see this exhibition. They've seemingly been picked that they each have a part or a room that they will go to and it will play into their, you know, their vices and their unsaid desires and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the son and this narrator boyfriend stand and watch and basically the room start to shift and move and it's you know kind of the way the box moves and these people are either crushed or murdered horribly and then the story tries to pull another twist by saying oh well this narrator actually framed the son for all of these murders and said that he was a mass serial killer and haha this was my deal that i made with the cenobites all along i completely even missed that part i don't (laughs) i i hesitated the 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 quiet pause you heard was the the brief moment where i was trying to figure out if i wanted to confess that i completely missed that (laughs) you were like wait what uh so yeah like i said i think there was stuff in this that like just Mm -hmm. went over my head you know I got the most general elements of it that, yeah, it was mm-hmm. this art installation that, like, basically turns into a giant lament configuration and just, like, chews up a bunch of people and kind of spits them out. Yeah. And that part is kind of evocative. If you can figure out, you know, it's not exactly clear how or where this works, but the idea that you have in your mind is actually pretty interesting. Like, I could visualize this in terms of a sequence kind of like in hell on earth where we get to see everything going down at the nightclub like mm. i think it'd be a very exciting sequence but the writing just it wasn't clear enough for me 
I think the, the 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 clearest element of this was actually your five word synopsis of the story in the notes. <laughs> Gaze at Dad's art installation. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to talk about this too because I did feel like there was a surprising lack of queerness in mm. this. Like, I think there's one or two other stories, but most of them don't really seem very comfortable to play in that sandbox, and. Considering all the talk that we get of like sexy stuff in the stories, I was a little surprised at how vanilla slash heteronormative the stories are. Yeah, I do think the only one that really gets into like this one does have queer elements, but the only one that gets into more of the queer eroticism is Tis the Pity He's Ashore, the very last story Mm, where the sailor meets with who he thinks is a sex worker that like his local contact has given to him. Uh, But that gets into some weird areas that I think Mm -hmm. was just, yeah, it, 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 I don't know if it tackles it as well as it could have. I'll just say no. And I didn't really like the writing in that one particularly. So yeah. Okay. So why don't we talk about the other one that has a kind of twisty secret reveal at the end, which I really liked. It's Mm -hmm. The Collector by Kelly Armstrong. And this is a woman who gets hired as a master puzzle solver. And then, of course, she is secretly revealed to be a woman who is collecting the lament configurations to keep them away from people who would use them to hurt others. Yeah. Yeah. It's... I, I really liked the because it's it's a twist that doesn't it's come out of gotcha, nowhere, is it? Yeah, yeah. No, it's not one where it's like, well, that was that. Like, it didn't seem like a cheat. You know, mm. they did a good job at making her seem very obsessed with puzzles, very good at puzzles, and they really just focus on that element of it. And so, it's not so much that the reveal is something that seems out of character. It's just something that Kelly Armstrong was leaving out of why she's so obsessed and why she's so good at puzzles. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's a really good reveal. It works really well because it's that idea of, you know, I always like that inversion of the person that you think is in danger, uh, but then you realize is in much more control of the situation than you, than you think. You know, you kind of see that sometimes with like, like I'm a sucker for that subgenre of, of horror movies where, the trope where it's it's a damsel in distress who's with someone who seems like dark and shadowy and mm-hmm. then there's that turn where it's oh no the the woman is the monster and she's the predator right. in that one yes. so this it's not the same exact vibe but it's similar where you know you're you're kind of worried for this person cuz it's like yeah you're real good at puzzles you're going to open one that you're really not going to like at the end of this mm-hmm. uh, so to subvert that at the end and like to realize that this person knows exactly what they're doing was a really interesting twist Well, it's interesting that you say that because I knew Armstrong because I've read actually a couple of her books. She's a Canadian supernatural author who has written what is called the Women of the Other World series. So there's a TV show called Bitten, which is based on some of these books. But all of her stories are basically about women who are super smart, touched by darkness, a little bit of a kind of paranormal investigator vibe to them. But she's got a very kind of easygoing, you know, mystery novelist vibe to the writing. And I found that that carried over into this short where I could easily see this be the start of a new book series that she would write. Mm, absolutely. And I would I would read the hell out of that. <laughs> 
Okay, so we've got a couple of other ones that don't sort of fall into easy categorization. Why don't we talk about one that we had high hopes for and didn't quite hit the mark? So this is Mechanism by Christopher Golden and Mike Magnola. Yeah, if that's ringing a bell, Mike Magnola, uh, he is the uh, author and uh, illustrator for the Hellboy comic book series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has also uh, visited the, the Hellraiser series before in probably one of my favorite graphic novel short stories uh, where he depicts this guy who is a serial killer who is basically trying to assemble the body parts needed to bring back this person who he thinks is like a messiah type figure and Mm -hmm. is basically just someone who has been trapped in hell and has been manipulating (laughs) him it's a really it's a really good short story uh the artwork is gorgeous so i came into mechanism like hoping for something similar and yeah it just didn't quite hit the mark for me i i like the the premise it's this kid who's at university he is like obsessed with intelligence obsessed with knowledge and he gets pulled from uh his his classes because his father has gone missing mm-hmm. and when he gets back home his grandmother is there you can tell she's kind of like very weary she doesn't want to tell him what's going on yeah she's being very kind of cagey uh, and you find out that he is gone but he's been building this giant mechanism in the basement mm-hmm. the purpose of which is unclear right and so you know the the kid kind of feels like well if i can figure out the purpose of this machine maybe it will give me some kind of sense of what happened to my dad sure you know and he starts hearing whispers he starts getting indications or he starts getting kind of nudged towards you know this is what the machine does you get a sense that he gets nudged towards you know you activate it by actually like getting in it Mm -hmm. and you power it basically and it's kind of this reveal at the end that you're perpetually powering this thing and and he and when he finds that out obviously it's too late you know it's that that twist at the end so it culminates in this ending that is a little ho-hum for me. He's mm-hmm. in the machine. He's seeing the spirit of his dad, who is continually kind of obsessed with the spirit of his mom. So he's kind of like seeing both of them. But then he's also realizing, I am now also trapped in yep. this perpetual motion of this like spiritual soul-sucking machine. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of like Prisoners of the Inferno. It's just kind of a series of things that happen. Yeah, it's all just a little bit ho-hum. I found this story incredibly repetitive, and I think that's by design. It just didn't end up satisfying me in the way that I had maybe hoped. It's a lot of interesting imagery, like descriptions of the mechanism going into the wall, but then not coming out the other side, Mm -hmm. and repetitious sounds in the night. And it just felt like it was maybe going to build to something, but the story is too long for too little payoff i would say yeah yeah there was way too much build up and not enough as you said payoff for it mm-hmm. so there's another story that is similarly kind of long and a little bit repetitious called the dark materials project by sarah langan and this one i would say is one of the furthest removed from the hellraiser mythos It's about a guy who works in tech, and this is set in a kind of futuristic world where black holes have begun opening up, and the research that this guy is doing is in dark shadow uh, 
I don't even know how to describe it, Brian. Yeah, yeah, it's the best I can describe it, especially for fellow Hellraiser fans, is it looks like this is a company that has figured out, albeit inadvertently, a way to do what Pinhead wanted to do in Bloodline, which was open up a much larger door to Mm -hmm. hell. It's very mathematical, very codey. Yes, yes. And it is, spoiler alert, he does it. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the guy figures it out. Um, yep. It ends with the end of the world. Yes, it does. It's huge in terms of scale. Yeah, but at the same time, it's a very small story because it's really concentrating on this guy. Like, what kind of guy would do that? And the answer right. is a piece of shit. This <laughs> might be the least likable protagonist in any Hellraiser story. And that's really saying something. Um, yeah, this is a guy who has a pregnant wife that he ends up locking in a trunk and mm-hmm. then delivering her stillborn baby the insinuation is is that he might be going mad, he might be hallucinating, but also we very much get the sense that he was an inattentive, bordering on abusive husband who doubted whether his wife was even being faithful to him. Well, he was meanwhile definitely not being faithful to her. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's just adding elements of just like some Frank Cotton elements mm-hmm. uh, with the idea that you, you know, he's this like corporate guy who may or not be hallucinating these things. You're getting a little bit of like Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. Yeah. Um, but it's just coming together in this. He doesn't bring anything compelling or interesting to it. Like if you're going to have someone that, that's that unlikable, you need to do something like with Patrick Bateman where he's so over the top that it's like, I just want to follow this guy for the ride and see where it goes. Uh, mm. This guy was just very like morose and He's so unpleasant, just selfish. <laughs> yeah. It just wasn't someone that you want to spend a, a story with. You know, I get the point that he's, he's supposed to be unlikable, but if you're going to do that, you need to have someone who's going to bring something compelling to the table. Well, yeah, because you very much get the impression that he is egocentric. Mm. He's, deluded in terms of his own self-worth and his his own importance you know he's calling the radio to say hey the things that you're saying about me aren't true but also please praise me and talk about me more yeah yeah i completely understand what you're saying i don't think it bothered me quite as much because i was sort of obsessed with his messiah complex but also i found that this was actually the easiest story to envision as a feature film yeah, I mean, it would need some budget because, you know, if they're going to portray or it might be one of those things where it's maybe more of a Pontypool where mm. like it's a, you know, very kind of contained story where right. they just imply all of the wild shit that's going on outside. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, I, I guess it is. But I think that's also a good um a good comparison of how you do someone who is on paper very unlikable. Right. Because, you know, in Pontypool, you have this shock jock who is a Rush Limbaugh or a Tucker Carlson type. Mm -hmm. But the story manages to kind of win you over to like, you actually care whether or not he lives or dies. Yeah. And so I think I would have liked something here, not necessarily make him more likable, but to make it like, that you can almost understand where this messiah complex comes from. Because the entire time I'm seeing it is like, oh, he's just a dick. Yeah, he he's almost too broad and yeah. villainous to believe that he would ever have been able to accomplish what he has. Because it's very clear he's super duper rich. He manages this giant company. He's got all these people who report to him. But he's 
terrible to everyone, mm-hmm. but in an almost cartoon villainy kind of way. Yeah, yeah. You know, he should be wearing a top hat and, you know, twirling a mustache. Right. <laughs> you don't get enough of being able to see, like, you know, how does he charm people over? Or, like, you know, what mm-hmm. kind of rhetoric does he have that, that you know, wins people over to his cause? You don't really yeah. get any of that. You just get he's awful and he does this awful thing that dooms everybody. Yeah. But I oh, I did like a lot of this, like the things that he hallucinates. There's some really creepy imagery. As we said, it's the end of the world. But, you know, there's a almost a paranoid techno thriller vibe to it where we're constantly trying to reboot computers and there's a countdown to a genome sequencing that's, you know, reminiscent of a Michael Creighton story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to die in the hill saying that this is one of the best ones, but this was one of the ones where I kept thinking, where is this going to go? You know, this feels properly Hellraiser adjacent, but it's very much doing its own thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think the areas where I get turned off by it, you know, folks who who have listened to this show for a while know that the the unlikable protagonist is like a personal thing for me uh, mm-hmm. so it's it's not to say that this is a bad story it's just on a personal taste level if you have someone who is just entirely unlikable it's probably going to be hard to win me over uh, with the story in general sure sure so we've got one left and i would say that this is one of the furthest removed from a traditional hellraiser story brian you decided you wanted to talk about this one it's only the blind survived by yvonne navarro mm-hmm. and this one is basically like a mexican maybe indigenous story yeah i liked it because again going back to that idea of i like taking the hellraiser story and doing it through a different cultural lens and so this mm-hmm. was one that really looked at it through a very different lens uh, it actually kind of reminded me of a similar approach to what uh the movie prey from last year did to the predator right. series yes great comparison and really kind of gave a fresh take on it but i do agree in hindsight that the demon here isn't really you know of a cenobite flavor it's Mm -hmm. kind of more of a beast that comes out of this portal yeah but i will say while it's not super hellraiser flavor it had a very barker vibe to it in the way they described Mm. the beast um because it's this i think i think navarro does a good job at describing this thing that you you get a general sense of what it is but it's almost too much for your brain to kind of really comprehend and I, I think the the thing that uh, Navarro leans into is this idea that it's almost like a, a sentient cactus. There's right. all of these quills and spines all over it. So basically, anywhere you touch it, it is going to just tear you up. Mm-hmm. And so taking that and doing things like where it is kind of slinking through the, the village and one of the, the villagers takes off their their blindfold because uh, within the context of the story, uh, the way to protect yourself from it is to not see it. If you mm-hmm. don't see it, it doesn't really get its power. And yeah. so the you know one of the, the leads who is a, a woman who is trying to kind of help hold the fort down in the village while a group of four spirit warriors go to take on the demon, she takes off her blindfold and she immediately gets stalked and attacked by this uh demon 
And <laughs> the way they describe it is like it latches onto her, it sinks its quills into her shoulders, and then it basically kisses her. Mm-hmm. And, and the way it describes that just sounds so horrific, where it's just all of these like pins and needles are just going into her mouth and into her mm-hmm. face. And then there's, of course, this big like showdown between the spirit warriors and the demon. One of the, the warriors dies, another one gets like forever maimed. Um, yep. But they, they, they take the demon out. But you find out at the end that like the woman that was injured by the demon seems to have been possessed by the demon in a fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you kind of get that little, you know, just that little stinger at the end that I think is very, very creature feature-ish in terms of Mm -hmm. the approach. Um, So, yeah, I would agree that this is probably not in the flavor of a Hellraiser mythos story, but I still thought it was really entertaining. Yeah, I mean, it was a really nice change of pace just compared to a lot of the other stories. I think the writing is good for the most part. You know, it's a pretty contained story because really you're just spending time in one of these spirit warriors. You know, he's actually the guy who's betrothed to the woman who takes off the blindfold. So you're getting their two perspectives Mm -hmm. and it's good. Yeah. I mean, I really like the imagery, as you said, of her being kissed and just imagining what that would look like and how it would feel and how painful it would be. Mm -hmm. So there's some really good stuff in here. It just maybe also felt like this was a story that had been written and then accepted into this Hellraiser anthology. And it was maybe tweaked slightly just to fit the bill a little bit. Yeah. Close enough kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sad I wrote it. It's just like, oh, did you submit this to multiple anthologies or hope to get this published somewhere else too? Well, I'm glad I found a home because I enjoyed reading it. There we go. Yeah. And honestly, compared to some of the ones we're not even talking about, (laughs) uh, at least this one stood out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's all the ones that we're going to talk about. But um, I guess I'm curious, Brian, if you had to pick one of these to either adapt into a short or a feature, or one that you feel like was the most on par with either Barker or the spirit of the films, is there one you would single out? I mean, I think I got to go with our our collective favorites, and that's The Confessor's Tale. I would love to Mm -hmm. see... And actually, I, I would think that would make for a good feature because that's one yes. that I think you could really, I don't want to say drag out, but you could really parse out into yes. the scenes of him getting deep into almost, it could almost be an anthology where mm-hmm. it's like each one of the confessions he gets, it's its own little vignette. Right. And then at the end, kind of the, the framing references that, you know, this is his Cenobite origin story. Right. Yeah. Like it's him telling the the, the king no, he wouldn't be able to tell his story. <laughs> in some way, him him telling the audience his story as he's working in the palace. And then, yeah, the, the twist reveal at the end is that he's been building up to this moment when he becomes a Cenobite and that's how it ends. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that would be just a really interesting kind of period piece, especially if you have the budget to kind of like mm-hmm. really do like an on location type set. Maybe not in Russia itself, but something where it doesn't just look like they're on like, you know a soundstage somewhere that they've sprinkled <laughs> some snow on or something like that. What are you saying? We we can't go back to Romania where we shot uh, Hell World and <laughs> what's the other one? I'd rather Getter? we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. You know what? I, I really like that pick. Um, I think you could probably make a really good short out of Sister Solis. Yes. I would love to see a queer woman tackle that. And apart from that, 
Yeah, I think those would probably be my my two. I think that if if we're looking for a short story, I think The Collector would make for a really good short film. Mm-hmm. Because I think I think dragging that out into a feature would be a little long in the tooth, but I think right. I think that would make for a really good short movie, and uh, maybe a little bit of a longer one, like maybe like a thirty minute short movie. Right. Yeah, you could make that not on the cheap, but you could do it for a little bit less because really you wouldn't need too too many locations. Mm-hmm. But then also, I think the reason that I like this too is that it felt so in step with some of the comics that we had read yes where it was like what kirsty and tiffany had sort of merged and become in the world of hellraiser where they were out there like tracking down boxes and stopping bad people i was like yeah Mm -hmm. this could be a series man absolutely yes all right well before we talk about where such sites to show will go next mr brian how would people get a hold of you if they want to berate you for not talking about any of the other stories in this anthology uh so as of as of now we actually have two places where you can yell at me uh you, you can find me on twitter at evil taylor hicks with the uh the sinking ship that it seems like twitter is becoming uh, mm-hmm. i have finally pulled the trigger on creating a instagram page so you there can also go. get me on instagram at evil taylor hicks so same screen name both platforms I'm shocked that no one had taken that handle on Instagram. <laughs> uh, there can be only one evil Taylor Hicks, and that is There me. we go. <laughs> well, I can be reached at Be So Am I Remote on both Instagram and Twitter. And of course, uh, if you want to, you could follow any of the number of shows on the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad network. We've basically got new shows coming out all the time now, so there's too many to list, but they're all amazing. And Joe RM is in like 95% of them. This is true. (laughs) I'm keeping the network afloat. (laughs) But yes, as teased, this is not the end. Mr. Brian, we need to go back to the movies. So how about we take a dip into some Lord of Illusions territory? So we're going to watch the movie, which of course is directed by one Clive Barker. But we're also going to read the short that it's based on called The Last Illusion, which will introduce Harry Dumour, whom we previously talked about. And that's from Books of Blood, Volume 6. And I'm excited because this is where I need to admit that I am a bad Clive Barker fan. Uh, <sighs> Lord of Illusions is the one Barker movie I have not yet seen. Ooh. So this is my opportunity to finally correct that. This is an interesting one. I'm I'm not going to pretend that it's wholly successful. I think there's a bunch of things where you're like, ah, it doesn't quite do it. I really like this movie. It's giving me sweaty Scott Bakula and early Famke <laughs> Janssen. And Nyx, I think, is such a good villain. So I'm super excited to finally talk about this with you. I'm excited too. Yeah, especially within the context of, of reading the story first too. It'd be a good uh, comparison. Yeah, yeah, because I honestly, I think I read the short story when we covered the film on Horror Queers, but it's not a straightforward adaptation. Like, one is the introduction to Harry Demore and the world of, like, supernatural magic, and then the movie is very much its own thing with the same character. So I think we're going to have some fun with this. Can't wait. All right. Well, until then... 
McGarris, get in touch about your weird sexy fetishes. <laughs> yeah, let's have a chat. We'll have our first guest. It'll be McGarris to talk about. <laughs> McGarris, explain yourself. <laughs> I don't want to talk about any of your movies. I want to talk about Hellbound Hollywood uh, <laughs> and the the weird kink that you have and have brought out of me. Mm-hmm. squad you're introduced to this young russian boy who is blind from birth and they open with it or no um sorry mute, sorry mute it's from not blind birth. is it yeah, yeah yeah no it's not no i don't know where i got blind from i think uh, that was me <laughs> um yes it's in the notes it says blind boy how dare you you did this to me <laughs> i'm getting all of this out so take it again <laughs>